Chapter 10 of The Pleasures of Ignorance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Penn. The Pleasures of Ignorance by Robert Lind. 10. Why We Hate Insects. It has been said that the characteristic sound of summer is the hum of insects, as the characteristic sound of spring is the singing of birds. It is all the more curious that the word insect conveys to us an implication of ugliness. We think of spiders, of which many people are more afraid than of Germans. We think of bugs and fleas, which seem so indecent in their lives that they are made a jest by the vulgar, and the nice people do their best to avoid mentioning them. We think of black beetles scurrying into safety as the kitchen light is suddenly turned on. Black beetles which, so we are told, in the first place are not beetles, and in the second place are not black. There are some women who will make a face at the mere name of any of these creatures. Those of us who have never felt this repulsion, at least against spiders and black beetles, cannot but wonder how far it is natural. Is it born in certain people, or is it acquired, like the old-fashioned habit of swooning in the fear of mice? The nearest I have come to it is a feeling of disgust when I have seen a cat retrieving a black beetle just about to escape under a wall and making a dish of it. There are also certain crawling creatures, which are so notoriously the children of filth and so threatening in their touch that we naturally shrink from them. Burns may make merry over a louse crawling in a lady's hair, but few of us can regard his kind with equanimity, even on the backs of swine. Men of science deny that the louse is actually engendered by dirt, but it undoubtedly thrives on it. Our anger against the flea also arises from the fact that we associate it with dirt. Dunn once wrote a poem to a lady who had been bitten by the same flea as himself, arguing that this was a good reason why she should allow him to make love to her. It is, and was bound to be a dirty poem, Love, even of the wandering and polygynous kind, does not express itself in such images. Only while under the dominion of the youthful heresy of ugliness could a poet pretend that it did. The flea, according to the authorities, is remarkable for its powers of leaping, and nearly cosmopolitan. Even so, it has found no place in the heart or fancy of man. There have been men who are indifferent to fleas, but there have been none who loved them. Though, if my memory does not betray me, there was a famous French prisoner some years ago who beguiled the tedium of his cell by making a pet and a performer of a flea. For the world at large, the flea represents merely hateful irritation. Mr. W. B. Yeats has introduced it into poetry in this sense in an epigram addressed to a poet who would have me praise certain bad poets, imitators of his and of mine, you say, as I have often given tongue, in praise of what another's said or sung, t'were politic to do the like by these, but where's the wild dog that has praised his fleas? When we think of the suffering of human beings and animals at the hands, if that is the right word, of insects, we feel that it is pardonable enough to make faces at creatures so inconsiderate. But what strikes me as remarkable is that the insects that do man most harm are not those that horrify him most. A lady who will sit bravely while a wasp hangs in the air and inspects first her right and then her left temple will run a mile from a harmless spider. Another will remain collected, though murderous, in presence of a horsefly, 
but will shudder at sight of a moth that is innocent of blood. Our fears, it is evident, do not march in all respects with our sense of physical danger. There are insects that make us feel that we are in presence of the uncanny. Many of us have this feeling about moths. Moths are the ghosts of the insect world. It may be the manner in which they flutter in unheralded out of the night which terrifies us. They seem to tap against our lighted windows as though the outer darkness had a message for us, and their persistence helps to terrify. They are more troublesome than a subject nation. They are more importunate than the importunate widow. But they are most terrifying of all if one suddenly sees their eyes blazing crimson as they catch the light. One thinks of nocturnal rites in an African forest temple, and of terrible jewels blazing in the head of an evil goddess. Jewels to be stolen, we realize, by a foolish white man, thereafter to be the object of a vendetta in a sensational novel. One feels that one's hair would be justified in standing on end, only that hair does not do such things. The sight of a moth's eye is, I fancy, a rare one for most people. It is a sight one can no more forget than a house on fire. Our feelings toward moths being what they are, it is all the more surprising that superstition should connect the moth so much less than the butterfly with the world of the dead. Who, save a cabbage grower, has any feeling against butterflies? And yet, in folklore, it is to the butterfly rather than to the moth that is assigned the ghostly part. In Ireland they have a legend about a priest who would not believe that men had souls, but, on being converted, announced that a living thing would be seen soaring up from his body when he died, in proof that his earlier skepticism had been wrong. Sure enough, when he lay dead, a beautiful creature with four snow-white wings rose from his body and fluttered around his head. And this, we are told, was the first butterfly that was ever seen in Ireland, and now all men know that the butterflies are the souls of the dead, waiting for the moment when they may enter purgatory. In the Solomon Islands, they say, it used to be the custom, when a man was about to die, for him to announce that he was about to transmigrate into a butterfly or some other creature. The members of his family, on meeting a butterfly afterwards, would exclaim, This is Papa, and offer him a coconut. The members of an English family, in like circumstances, would probably say, Have a banana. In certain tribes of Assam, the dead are believed to return in the shape of butterflies or houseflies, and for this reason no one will kill them. On the other hand, in Westphalia, the butterfly plays the part given to the scapegoat in other countries, and on St. Peter's Day in February, it is publicly expelled with rhyme and ritual. Elsewhere, as in Samoa, I do not know where I found all these facts, probably in the Golden Bough, the butterfly has been feared as a god, and to catch a butterfly was to run the risk of being struck dead. The moth, for all I know, may be the center of as many legends, but I have not met them. It may be, however, that in many of the legends, the moth and the butterfly are not very clearly distinguished. To most of us, it seems easy enough to distinguish between them. The English butterfly can always be known, for instance, by his clubbed horns. But this distinction does not hold with regard to the entire world of butterflies, a world so populous and varied that 13,000 species have already been discovered, and entomologists hope one day to classify twice as many more. Even in these islands, indeed, most of us do not judge a moth chiefly by its lack of clubbed horns. It is for us the thing that flies by night and eats holes in our clothes. We are not even afraid of it in all circumstances. 
Our terror is an indoors terror. We are on good terms with it in poetry, and play with the thought of the desire of the moth for the star. We remember that it is for the moths that the pallid jasmine smells so sweetly by night. There is no shudder in our minds when we read, And when white moths were on the wing, and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in a stream and caught a little silver trout. No man has ever sung of spiders or earwigs or any other of our pet antipathies among the insects like that. The moth is the only one of the insects that fascinates us with both its beauty and its terror. I doubt if there have been greater hordes of insects in this country than during the past spring. It is the only complaint one has to make against the sun. He is a desperate breeder of insects, and he breeds them not in families like a Christian, but in plagues. The thought of the insects alone keeps us from envying the tropics their blue skies and hot suns. Better the North Pole than a plague of locusts. We fear the tarantula and have no love for the tsetse fly. The insects of our own climate are bad enough in all conscience. The grasshopper, they say, is our murderer. And though the earwig is a perfect mother, other insects, such as the burying beetle, have the reputation of parasites. But, dangerous or not, the insects are for the most part teasers and destroyers. The green fly makes its colonies in the rose. A purple fellow swarms under the leaves of the apples, and another scoundrel, black as the night, swarms over the beans. There are scarcely more diseases in the human body than there are kinds of insects in a single fruit tree. The apple that is rotten before it is ripe is an insect's victim, and, if the plums fall green and untimely in scores upon the ground, once more it is an insect that has been at work among them. Talk about German spies! Had German spies gone to the insect world for a lesson, they might not have been the inefficient bunglers that they showed themselves to be. At the same time, most of us hate spies and insects for the same reason. We regard them as noxious creatures intruding where they have no right to be, preying upon us and giving us nothing but evil in return. Hence our ruthlessness. We say vermin and destroy them. To regard a human being as an insect is always the first step in treating him without remorse. It is a perilous attitude, and in general is more likely to beget crime than justice. There has never, I believe, been an empire built in which, at some stage or other, a massacre of children among a revolting population has not been excused on the ground that nits make lice. Swat that Bolshevik no doubt seems to many reactionaries as sanitary a council as swat that fly. Even in regard to flies, however, most of us can only swat with scruple. Hate flies as we may, and wish them in perdition as we may, we could not slowly pull them to pieces, wing after wing and leg after leg, as thoughtless children are said to do. Many of us cannot endure to see them slowly done to death on those long strips of sticky paper on which flies drag their legs and their lives out, as it seems to me, a vile cruelty. A distinguished novelist has said that to watch flies trying to tug their legs off the paper one after another till they are twice their natural length is one of his favorite amusements. I have never found any difficulty in believing it of him. It is an odd fact that considerateness if not actually kindness, to flies has been made one of the tests of gentleness in our popular speech. How often has one heard it said in praise of a dead man, he wouldn't have hurt a fly. 
As for those who do hurt flies, we pillory them in history. We have never forgotten the cruelty of Domitian. At the beginning of his reign, Suetonius tells us, he used to spend hours in seclusion every day, doing nothing but catch flies and stab them with a keenly sharpened stylus. Consequently, when someone asked if anyone was in there with Caesar, Vibius Crispus made the witty reply, Not even a fly. And just as most of us are on the side of the fly against Domitian, so are most of us on the side of the fly against the spider. We pity the fly as, if the image is permissible, the underdog. One of the most agonizing of the minor dilemmas in which a too sensitive humanitarian ever finds himself is whether he should destroy a spider's web, and so, perhaps, starve the spider to death, or whether he should leave the web, and so connive at the death of a multitude of flies. I have long been content to leave nature to her own ways in such matters. I cannot say that I like her in all her processes, but I am content to believe that this may be owing to my ignorance of some of the facts of the case. There are, on the other hand, two acts of destruction in nature which leave me unprotesting and pleased. One of these occurs when a thrush eats a snail, banging the shell repeatedly against a stone. I have never thought of the incident from the snail's point of view. I find myself listening to the tap-tap of the shell on the stone as though it were music. I felt the same sort of mild thrill of pleasure the other day when I found a beautiful spotted ladybird squeezing itself between two apples and settling down to feed on some kind of aphids that were eating into the fruit. The ladybird, the butterfly, and the bee, who would put chains on such creatures? These are insects that must have been in Eden before the snake. Beelzebub, the god of the other insects, had not yet any engendering power on the earth in those days, when all the flowers were as strange as insects, and all the insects were as beautiful as flowers. End of chapter 10